Welcome back to the Language Mastery Show. This is your host, John Fotheringham. In today's show, I chat with Gabriel Weiner, the author of Fluent Forever and the founder of the app of the same name. When Gabe and I recorded this conversation, the app was still under development, but by the time you're hearing this, it's actually now available in both the Apple App Store and in the Google Play Store. I've had a chance to play around with the beta version, and it's a really, really cool tool. I highly recommend it. For show notes, go to languagemastery.com slash show. All right, enjoy my conversation with Gabriel Weiner. I think where I'd like to start, I think a lot of my listeners aren't going to know who you are and be familiar with, with Fluent Forever, either the book or the app, but mm-hmm. let's go back to sort of the beginning of your linguistic origin story, as it were. Um, sure. You know, how did you go from college student to opera singer to polyglot to CEO of, a, I believe it's the most crowdfunded app in history. That's it, it is, it is that thing for sure. Yeah. Um, so w- which version do we want? Do we want like this, this, this shorty, <laughs> short, short version? Do we want the 10 minute version? What do we... Whatever feels most comfortable to you. I know you've, right. you've told your own story. I'm sure that's times you're bored of it, but um, we could, we yeah. could start out however. <laughs> okay. As much as you um, want to share. Sure. So, so yeah, like I, I started this thing. Um, I started my experiences with language learning in like elementary school. Like I was trying to learn Hebrew in elementary school for mm-hmm. in middle school for seven years. It didn't get anywhere. Uh, I tried to learn Russian with really great teachers for five and a half years in middle, like junior high and high school didn't get anywhere and then got to college and double majored in mechanical engineering and opera. Cause I thought that do. would be, that'd be weird. And <laughs> I liked doing things that were weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and the opera degree required, uh, not that much, actually. Like the the actual class requirements were like a semester each of French, Italian, and German, mm-hmm. and then the second semester of one of those. But I didn't want to take language classes, and I had a friend recommend that I go to Middlebury College uh, during a summer and take their immersion courses. And I they had a German for Singers program specifically, where you could take voice lessons in German and like put on an opera in German and then take all your classes with all the other German students. And so I did that thing and discovered that like, wait, no, I'm not crappy at languages. I just, immersion's amazing. And I'm dreaming in German in three weeks and Mm -hmm. I'm having really good conversations in seven weeks. And I loved it. Like the idea of being able to think in a new way and it's awesome. So I got kind of addicted to that. And that started becoming the main reason I liked opera, honestly. Mm -hmm. I didn't really like performing that much Mm. (laughs) i liked singing i liked Mm -hmm. creating um the idea of taking music and building something new out of it the idea of going together with a bunch of great artists and building something that never happened before like awesome Mm -hmm. but like getting on the stage by myself and like being in front of people and trying to expose myself is like painful um and so but the thing i really loved about language about opera was it was an excuse to learn languages Mm. Here's a career where, like, there's the only other one that really exists there is like secret agent for <laughs> really value multi, like, not just bilingualism, but multilingualism. Like sure. That's. Is the idea then in opera that you need to understand the content you're singing to help better perform it? So, like, I came into it, like, in my freshman year, I was singing in all languages and I was familiar with roughly pronunciation in all those languages. And then after doing this German course uh, and performing in German when I could think in German, it uh, changed everything. It was like, oh, this is night and day. This is you when you can pronounce a language versus when you can think in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a completely different kind of performance. And and you see this. You can like get a really visceral sense of this by going to any student recital. Particularly if uh, this was a neat thing to see in Austria, in particular, because it was a very multicultural group. 
at a bunch of like Korean students and American students and stuff. And the way these recitals work is you sing a bunch of the stuff you're supposed to sing for the first like 45 minutes. And then the last 10 minutes is like, oh, and let's bring some of your native language stuff in. And so the Korean students would sing in Korean and the American mm-hmm. students would sing in like, like cowboy songs or whatever. It was like, like their, their real local state stuff. Uh-huh. And the difference between the last 15 minutes and the first 45 minutes was, was huge. Like the first 45 minutes was like, oh, yes, that was lovely. And then the last 15 minutes, you're like, oh, this is great. Like, I, don't, I can't understand a word these Korean kids are singing, but this is amazing. Mm-hmm. They're all in. Emotional. They're all in. They're they're yeah. like they're they're just saying a thing. They're trying to co- communicate stuff that they're thinking through mm-hmm. the medium of song. And you're like, oh, this is what I actually want to listen to. And that happened with me with German. And it became like, well, I could decide I, I could either be crappy or not crappy. So <laughs> I, I'm either going to be learn these languages for real or fake it and and not be good at those languages and just like basically truncate my career in that front. Right. And so I was like, okay, well, I, I got to learn them. And also I liked learning them like that. That felt mm-hmm. good. So I wanted to keep going. And so I, I went to Italy for an immersion course in Italian, found out that the Italians really like speaking English and that Vermont was a better yes. place to learn Italian. <laughs> <laughs> and then I wanted to go back to Vermont for French and I wanted to be in a higher level than I was at. And so I, they had an online placement test. I cheated on it. I cheated too well. They put me in this like <laughs> high level course that I didn't yeah. want to be in. I Instant karma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, instant karma. Yeah. I had three months to learn French and like handled this entrance interview to make sure I didn't cheat. And then I found Anki. And I saw that everyone was using Anki with translations and I didn't want to because I knew that wasn't going to work. Right. And so I redid, I, I built flashcards using target language flashcards. I think that's a really unique and interesting part of the book and also of the app is that you do not use translations as a rule. Yeah. Um, and I'd love to delve into why that's the case. Um, I'm happy to go off on that tangent now. As Here we can go on that I'm tangent. Like the, so. the, the, like the, the basic thing with language from my standpoint, like language is just memory. Like it's like, it's just <laughs> the, your, your ability to talk about dogs has to do with the fact that your dog is associated with, you know, 10,000 different things. Your dog is associated with 200 dogs you've seen in your life your dog like these images and these these experiences of dogs your your dog is associated and some of those are like facebook memes and and crap like that's (laughs) that's dog for you now Mm -hmm. um dog is associated with yeah all that stuff like dog is associated with a thousand you know ten thousand sentences that you've experienced that have the word dog in them dog has associations to the word cat they're not mm-hmm. the same species. Dog is still associated with cat. Dog is associated to tail. It's associated to paw. It's associated to furry. It's associated to animal, mammal, all these things. And like every one of those things is a is memory. Like that's what memory is. It's just connections. And your dog is connected to all of these things. And then people come in and they're like, "Oh, you should learn. You should learn this language." Like, "Hey, it's it's a kutya." And you're like, "That's the same thing as dog." And you're like, "Well, but where's the word for tail?" Where's the word for cat? Like, I don't know any of those in this new language. I don't have any picture associations to kutya. I don't have any grammatical associations to kutya. Like, like in English, you don't say I have two monies, but you say I have two dogs. Like, there's grammatical components to, to dog in English. But you don't know any of that in the, in, in, with kutya. You don't, I haven't even said what language it's from. Like, you're like I don't know what this has to do with. Right. Um, it's just sound. And so, it's yeah. just some sounds. And honestly, yeah. even the sounds are bad. Like you don't even mm-hmm. have connections to those sounds. And so you're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> and and this this translation approach, like it, it, it murders you before you start. Mm-hmm. And the only way that you're going to be able to talk like 
comfortably about Kutya is if you build the same sorts of associations. Now, are you going to build as many? Like, no, you don't have a lifetime worth of time mm-hmm. to build that many associations to Kutya as you have with dog, but you can still build something that resembles that. Mm-hmm. You can still start connecting Kutya things that are in a sentence that would be with with dogs in Hungarian in this particular case. You can start talking about, you know, my dog wagged his tail in Hungarian. And then at that point now, Kutya starts having uh, grammatical associations. It starts having word associations and imagery to it. And then you have like a living word. You have a useful thing. But as long as you're trying to connect two words from two completely different ways of thinking, you're not actually building the associations that you you really need, the ones that you would use in your native language. Uh, and so from that standpoint, that's that's where like philosophically, I'm just like, well, we're, we're, you're trying to do the wrong thing. Like you, you can spend all the time you want trying to do the wrong thing and you're not going to get to where you want to go. Right. And that's so, when people start thinking they're bad at language learning. No, you're just, you're bad at making, you know, almost arbitrary association between sounds and and, and letters yeah yeah nobody's I mean, trans- good at that translation is hard yeah like it, and and professional translators that there's a reason why simultaneous translators are paid like 200 to 500 bucks an hour because it's, mm-hmm. it's the hardest damn job in the world right uh, it's so it's it's overwhelmingly difficult to to transfer one way of thinking into another one immediately and then we mm-hmm. ask high school students to do it we're right. just like go <laughs> here's a bunch of sentences in right. english now now i want them in spanish and you're like right. well i pay me <laughs> right well, and in my experience, um, I, I worked in Japan. I did some translation work for the government there. And the professional translators, I mean, written translation, not not, yeah. not interpretation, they actually didn't really speak English very well. They could translate really well. But if you were to speak back the same words that they just had translated on you know on paper, they would really struggle just because they had not practiced that skill. And that shows right. you there's that massive delta between the spoken language and the written word and translation. So yeah, yeah I, no, I, I totally agree. Different things. So you talk about in the book um, and as well, it's reflected in the app as well, that you should really start with pronunciation first. Yeah. And I know part of that relates to the levels of processing, which we can get into later. Sure. But can you get into why pronunciation first? Why not start with like memorizing the written alphabet or memorizing the you know 100 most common words or, or some common grammar points why why pronunciation first um there's a example i tend to jump to which is the hungarian word for camera which is like a word that you cannot hold on to for more than zero seconds like it just yeah. vanishes instantly and it vanishes instantly because uh it contains so many sounds that are foreign to english speakers ears mm-hmm. and any sounds that are foreign to your ears are sounds that you can't really store well. And it's something that we all have experience with anytime we meet people with foreign sounding names, where we forget their names instantly. And we're like, yes. what was that? <laughs> you're like, Bachom. And you're like, what? <laughs> Can you spell that like 10 times? Yeah. And like we, we experience this with names and we feel like that's normal. And then we go into a language and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to like learn all these sounds that are all these words with sounds that I've never experienced before. And that that should be easy for me. And oh, it's not. I guess I must be bad at languages. Right. And like, no, no, no. Like that's, that's a, a part of the human brain. Like that's, that's not, it's like the human condition is that if you hear things that you've never heard before, that will be hard for you. Mm-hmm. Especially when it sounds that you're, you've not learned how to hear. So like the Japanese, right. the, the Japanese speakers trying to learn uh, English words with R's and L's in them. Oh, it's so hard for them. Are, they're going to have like a yeah. brutally hard time because I say lake and they're like random ache. Right. They're like, I don't know what the first letter is, so I have to store this this like vagueness right. in my memory. 
And how are they supposed to succeed at that? And you're like, oh, no, no, this one is like a, a bunch of water, but this one is like a gardening implement. Right. And they sound exactly the same. To them. Absolutely. So good luck with that. Yeah. Well, and, and they transliterate them usually using katakana, you know. They'll yeah, put, with the, uh, yeah. Yeah. And like, yeah, like they're, they're, they're screwed. And, and it's not fair to ask someone to start trying to store stuff that their, their brains are not going to cooperate with. Uh, and so why not spend your first step as training that and making it so that now instead of having a single, you know, de, uh, bucket, you develop some new buckets and here's a mm-hmm. la bucket and here's a ra bucket and mm-hmm. here's these are two different new things and none of them are de or da. Right. Like none of them are the right. Japanese word. Um, and you can do that. Like there's there's clear like research on exactly how to do that with with pairs like Rake and Lake. You just force mm-hmm. them to differentiate. And like that will Which the develop. app does a great job of, by the way, for those that haven't tried it out yet. You, you, they have like minimal pair exercises, which are really cool. And um, I was doing it for, well, I just started learning German. I'm like absolute mm-hmm. zero level. Perfect. And, and there were a few where I'm like, are you sure those are different? <laughs> you have to really listen to it a few times and then, yeah. But it's great. It's so powerful. It's 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 neat in that you can... I like the minimal pair stuff in the sense that aside from it being like effective, I think from a, from a learner standpoint, it's a little bit thrilling in the sense mm-hmm. that the first time you hear something, you can be like, there's no way that's different. Right. Like you are lying to me. Yes, you just <laughs> play the same recording yeah. twice, yep. and you're a jerk. And then two <laughs> weeks later, you're like, "Oh yeah, I can hear that." And yeah. that that shift and having that shift so fast, like mm-hmm. for me at least, that was super exciting. I think that that's like it's weird to see that your your things that you I don't know. It's like the the, the you showed these videos of people giving like colorblind people glasses that like show them the colors. Yeah, and they like cry and things. And right. it's like it feels like that just just in audio or a, a deaf baby hearing their mother. This kind of thing. They get a cochlear implant or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's. Um, I, I think it was Barry Farber. He had that quote that progress is a narcotic, and that's <laughs> it's so <laughs> true. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah and that kind of tangible because it's not just you know, you're, Oh, I can understand a few more words when I read. It's something that's visceral and tangible. Yeah. So that's cool. And like with the pronunciation stuff, like, yes, I think that the ear training is your first barrier to entry in terms of memory, but also, um, if you don't do it, then you're in, you're going to be from the start building habits in terms of how your tongue moves. Right. And if your habits are terrible and you're pronouncing everything with a thick American accent or something, and then you do that a thousand times, and then someone after you've learned all your words and a bunch of grammar and stuff, then someone's like, "Hey, let's fix your pronunciation." You're in such a crappy position to fix it. Like you said the word, you know, "taco" two thousand times, and someone's like, "Oh no, no, taco," and you're taco, like, "Right, uh, <laughs> oh. okay, I'll do that once, taco," and then like you have a thousand yeah. ta- tacos ahead of you. Yeah that are just bearing down on you in terms of inertia. And like the next time you say the word, the word, you're going to want to say Taiko. Yeah. So um, a guy uh, I knew in, uh, when I lived in Taiwan, he was a like linguist martial artist combo, which is very unique. That's cool. I also was anyway, uh, Antonio Rosefo. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Anyway, he, he had a great quote, which is uh, practice does not make perfect practice makes permanent. Mm. So make sure you're practicing the right things. That's Perfect. That's great. You know, it's the idea of fossilization, which I know is controversial in the linguistics world, but in my experience, it's true and it's a big problem. So 
you can't undo memories. I mean, this yeah. is, these are also memories. Like these are these are memories of how your your mouth moves, and you can't make them go away. You can add new ones, and you can make them more powerful mm-hmm. by, uh, for one, repeating it more often. Like you can you can do your taco thing a thousand and one times, and now you right. have a little bit more power. Uh, you can you can train the taco thing a little bit more more uh, effectively by doing it via testing. Mm-hmm. So maybe every repetition counts more in terms of how how deep of a groove it makes. But you will never lose that taco groove if you built it. Right. And so now you all you can do is build a second groove next to it and then try mm-hmm. to make that groove a little deeper. But, and doesn't it take conscious processing to suppress also going to that deeper groove, which is exhausting and takes a lot of it takes firepower. Effort. Yeah. Yeah. And if you have that everywhere in your language, if every word you have is pronounced wrong, then you've got a lot of work to do to be avoiding every single one of these these like uh, trap grooves right is that why you think so many people that have studied a foreign language in a more academic you know vocabulary centered grammar centered way holds on to their accent typically (laughs) or is there more i mean i I think yes i think basically it's just it's repetition it's you've you've done it a bunch and now you have a habit so you either pay attention to that habit and try and do something about it or you don't honestly i think probably the biggest aspect of accent reduction has to do with care Mm-hmm. I found that uh, particularly with uh, Americans, but not it's not universal with that. I mean, it's not exclusively to, to Americans, but I find a lot of people who are like, oh, it's a taco. And you're like, taco? And they're like, oh, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I don't want to sound silly or look like I'm... Yeah, I feel, it seems like that's often the case for Americans, probably everywhere, but especially Americans, is this idea of either not wanting to look silly, not wanting to look like you're trying too hard. And then maybe it's potentially even there's a fear of being offensive because they've seen so many terrible movies where people are doing racist accents and impersonations, and there's maybe a fear of For sure. off that way too. I think I there's also. I, I think that's that's absolutely in there, and and I hear you on that because, like, yeah, I think there's a sense of well, now am I just going to fake being a Frenchman? Like, mm-hmm. that's isn't that offensive? But also, I think there's. Um, I think people don't understand whether it's important. If they can't hear it, if they can't really hear the difference between the taco and taco then how are they supposed to know that it's important? Mm. And that was actually another thing I really like about the minimal pair stuff is that as soon as you throw something in front of someone where they're like, ta or ta, people are like, wait, I can't, what? What was, that was a difference? Right. <laughs> and when you put differences like that, people are like, well, I guess that, that must matter then. If I'm, if I'm struggling with this, then it must matter for me. I, I, must, I better learn how to hear this because otherwise this test is going to, I'm going to get this test wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it starts reinforcing the the idea that it, this is something worth paying attention to rather than just this is another thing that I could pay attention to. Right. And then if your brain knows it's important, it's more likely to hold on to it. Yes, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So we mentioned earlier about this idea of there's the four levels of processing, which you mm. talk about in the book, in a, I think, in a really clear way. Can you just run through those for those that are not familiar, what those levels are? So the levels of processing came out of a... Um, a set of studies where they gave college students a bunch of words uh, and they asked them questions about them. So the words were all sort of concrete words like bear and apple and pear and things like that. Uh, they were all kind of controlled for length so that one, it wasn't like one was super long and the other one like hippopotamus and the other one was like bear. They were all like four or five letters long. They're all e- like e- equally easy to remember theoretically. Um, and then they asked students questions about them. Uh, and those questions were like, how many letters are in the word bear? Does apple rhyme with snapple? Uh, mm-hmm. Does uh, do you use bears? Can you can you hammer nails with uh, with a, a bear? Um, and do you what do you what like do you like pizzas? Questions mm-hmm. like these, and they would just have a bunch of of questions where it would be, do you like it? 
uh, what do you feel about it kind of things, mm -hmm. uh, personal questions. Uh, they would have a bunch of meaning questions. Do you use it for this? Do you use it for that? Like, what is, like, is this an animal? Stuff like that. They would have uh, rhyming questions that dealt with the sound. And then they would have set the spelling questions that asked, like, is there a P in the word, you know, apple? And they ostensibly, the students who were taking this thing, were, they, they thought they were being graded, I guess, on whether they, how quickly they could answer these questions or something. Like, and right. then They didn't know they, the true purpose, which makes right. it a valid study. Yeah. And then they distracted the students for a while, and then they gave them a memory test that just said, let, let me know all the things we asked you about. Give me the list of words. And what they found is that if you ask people about how many letters are in the word bear, people are going to forget that word. Just overwhelmingly. It's not a very meaningful thing. Despite the fact that bears are furry and memorable and then can kill you and all sorts of stuff, if you ask for the number of letters in it, eh, that, that's not stored and it's not processed. Like we aren't, You aren't really thinking about furry bears when you, you ask, when you're looking for the number of letters, you're thinking about B-E-A-R. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you ask for the, whether bear rhymes with pear, then uh, you remember it about twice as much. Uh, the idea of thinking about the sound of a word that's twice as memorable as structure, but is not super memorable also. So students are forgetting most of those as well. If you ask about what bears do, if they can hammer nails, if they're animals, things like that, that's when that doubles again. So it's four times as memorable as structure and starts becoming seriously memorable. Um, and so this is the sort of level of meaning. Like, do you actually, are you thinking about what this means? Uh, and that's where, uh, if you start connecting words like bear to pictures of bears, that's where you're actually building connections. And when you're trying to build connections between, you know, uh, orso and bear, mm -hmm. then really all you're trying, doing is connecting the sound of the word bear to the sound of the word orso. You're not thinking about, uh, you know, that the, the orsos are brown or things like that. You're just mm -hmm. thinking, no, this is the, <laughs> yeah, he said the word bear, then he said orso is the same thing. I guess I should remember that those are the same. Right. So this is a sound connection, whereas as soon as you say orso and you take a picture of an orso, then you, and it happens to look like a bear, you think, okay, well, that's that's what that must look like. That's that's what that word means. And then there's one layer on top of that that's more memorable still, which is uh, personal connection. So if you start asking, do you like pizzas? Do you like bears? What do you feel about these things? Mm -hmm. um, is you know, what, what's your favorite bear in history? Those kinds of questions are fifty to one hundred percent more memorable than content than meaning. Uh, and so you can take advantage of this in a really systematic manner, a systematic way, which is that a don't make translation connections, the sound connections. Go straight for pictures. So at the very least, you have a, a meaning connection. And then if you have the choice, then, then you choose that picture. You choose the one that, you matter, that matters the most to you. Mm -hmm. If you can keep adding more personal stuff to that do, so don't just choose a picture of a bear that you think looks like a bear, but choose your favorite bear. If you care about you, if the first bear that comes to mind is like Yogi, mm -hmm. then like search for Yogi, get right. Yogi Bear in your flashcards. If you have a personal memory about bears that is like, oh, in 2009, like my friend got like chased by a bear, then like put 2009 on your flashcards so that it brings back that memory. Like the more you can do in terms of personalizing this stuff, the more memorable it's going to be. And that doesn't mean it needs to take tons of time and you don't need to write a whole journal entry about bears. You can pretty quickly say, all right, well, my, my system is choose my favorite bear. Mm-hmm. If I have the option, write down any sort of memories that come down, like the, a quick marker of that. 2009, that was the bear story thing that happened. Done. Go to the next word. Right. And that can take you 15 seconds. It doesn't need to be forever. And that all on its own will be uh, two to four times more memorable than just trying to do some translation. It has just so many more little memory tentacles yes. wrapped up in it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, 
I don't know if you've gone into learning kanji before or not, but yes, I have. So yeah, the same th- kind of thing applies. And that's, that's when I first sort of came across the idea of using emotion and stories to try to remember kanji. Cause like everyone else, I first started doing them just the rote way where you, oh, you write them out hundreds of times and poof, there's nothing, just nothing to attach to. So painful. Yeah. Um, you know, James Isaac talks about, it's like looking at a kaleidoscope, memorizing that, and then you bump it and then suddenly it's, you know, a different yeah. image, it's the yeah. same idea. But yeah, once I switched to using really crazy stories that would, you know, you remember a story then and not random piles of strokes. And I, yes. I feel like this is kind of similar, but even more developed. So, so flashcards is sort of, it's a big part of the book and it's a big part of the app as well. Yeah. Flashcards in some quarters can be a controversial topic. They're, they're a bad people, word. They can, be, word. they can be a four-letter <laughs> word. That's right. Why do you think they are such an important tool in the language learners toolkit? So flashcards, like uh, they get a bad rap because people have played with them in school and they sucked and <laughs> didn't yeah. feel good. And it's like, oh, I don't, why do I want that? Like, why would I? Who likes flashcards? They're the least sexy thing. Like, yeah. uh, if I could not have anything, if I could have my app not be associated with flashcards, that'd be great. The thing that flashcards really accomplish is really testing, uh, which is that if I give you, uh, you know, Orso is bear, or I, even if I give you Orso is, is, like, here's a picture of a bear and I just present that, you know, bear underneath i have a picture of this orso and underneath it says the word orso and i i me presenting that to you is fine like that's not a bad use of your time but you know if tomorrow i present that to you again that's a pretty junky use of your time like yeah the first time you looked at it and you're like okay i get it this is orso second time you're like okay well now you showed that to me again thank thank you for showing me the <laughs> same thing you showed me yesterday Whereas if I leave any part of that information incomplete and I just show you the picture of the bear and I have an under, a question mark underneath, as soon as there's some piece that's missing and I'm asking you to fill it in, that ends up being about five times as effective as the presentation of just the information. Uh, in terms of a use of your time, if you want to use your time effectively, testing a piece of information versus reading a piece of information mm-hmm. is five times more effective uh, use of your time. And so flashcards are just an accessible way of testing. And I think people are used to flashcards on paper, but as as you start getting towards flashcards that are asking you questions via audio, that are mm-hmm. presenting images to you, that on the back sides of the flashcards are presenting audio, like is this a flashcard? Like not really. This is a this is a computerized test. But there is a concept of there is the question and there is the answer, and one side is the question, the other side is the answer, and so the most accessible concept we have for that are our flashcards. But the thing that I care about from the flashcard standpoint is not you know, front and back, the thing I care about is, are we testing or are we presenting? Because mm-hmm. presenting is junk. Like, I, I, like present, fine, present once if, we, if you gotta. Right. Uh, but every minute thereafter should be testing. And when you say testing, another word that you would call that in the book is recalling versus reviewing. Yeah. Right. I mean, That's you, like, that same. You, you need to reach for it. If you're, if you're not, like that moment where I'm like, hey, do you remember we've, we've been talking about Orso this whole time? Do you remember what that was? Asking that question and then having someone think like, wait, okay, they were just talking about that. Uh, that uh moment, mm-hmm. that's the moment. Like that's when memory is formed. And if you don't get the uh moment, you've lost the the one thing that you wanted. <laughs> the power of the uh. Yeah, it's like that's it's all about that. And honestly, the longer the uh is, the better, the more effective that test is. So if we asked about something like, what was that that Hungarian word for dog? Like that one's going to be way harder to get. And probably unreachable because of the pronunciation issue, honestly. Mm-hmm. But maybe, like, there are going to be some of your listeners who are going to look and they're going to be like, that was a cool something. Mm-hmm. 
And like, they, that's what you, you want. Like you want that, uh, that lasts for like five to 10 seconds. That's a super effective test. That's really interesting. Cause I think most people think of if they're reviewing flashcards or any kind of, of app, they think if it's easy, that means they're doing well yeah. and that it's a good use of their time, which right. you're saying is actually, it's a waste it's of their the time. Opposite. It's, it is. it's not a waste. It's like, it's interesting that, that you already me, know me it. Saying, yeah. But like, like me asking you, there was like a, a super not intuitive thing that's, that's actually really cool, which is that I can say, okay, the Hungarian word for, for dog is kutyo. Uh, and I can say, okay, so what's the Hungarian word for dog? And you could be like, uh, you just said it three seconds ago and mm-hmm. it was kutyo. And I could be like, okay, so cool, kutyo. Uh, what was that word again? And you're like, uh, kutyo. <laughs> <laughs> and that second question, that super easy, stupid question, mm-hmm. that actually ingrains that word a lot. Mm. Even and I can keep asking it over and over and over again, and each one is actually quite effective at burying that deeper and deeper in your memory in a good way. It's just that if you're really trying to optimize time, like ideally, then yeah, you want that to be. You want I, I want to ask you that question in a minute or two instead of one second later. Right. You can like double or triple the effectiveness of a test by by making it right at that border of of whether you can remember it or not. Mm-hmm. But like that actually you don't lose the effectiveness of the test even when it's easy. So it's not that uh, easy is bad. It's that hard is better. And I guess which is, which is counterintuitive. Yeah. Right, it's more, sure. it's more, it's the idea of asking stupid questions that you know, the answer to the, the idea that that has any value is like, it couldn't possibly. And yet mm-hmm. when you test it, it totally does like, which, which blows me away. So this kind of transitions into the idea of spaced repetition, which I know yep. is really an important part of, of your app and, and many of the flashcard apps out there. Yep. Most people probably know what it is, but just for the sake of those that do not, can you just give a brief explanation? Just maximizing of what, what maximizing is? uh is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> an uh, uh optimizer. It's, it's an uh optimizer. It's basically that that we know that an uh of five to ten te- seconds is an ideal amount of uh. Um, and if we ask you the same questions every five seconds, you're gonna get, you know, zero, one one second of uh. Mm-hmm. But if we ask it, you know, later. <laughs> then you might get two seconds of a. And if we ask it even later, then you might get three seconds of a. And if you ask it way too late, then you're going to get infinite seconds of a and you're not going to remember. Uh, and so you can kind of zero in on where is the good sweet spot um, with a computer, which is that hey, we're guessing. We're going to guess, mm-hmm. hey, I'm going to give you a And I'm going to say, do you remember what that was? And you're going to say, uh, a dog. <laughs> and then I'm going to say, okay, well, you got that. And I, that was a good amount of a. Mm-hmm. So... Let's wait a few days. Let's mm-hmm. let's ask you in two days. And in two days, if you got it, then we'll say, okay, well, two days was a good choice. Let's try four days. Let's try, and then if you get it in four days, let's try seven. Let's try 12. Let's try to keep expanding this thing. Uh, and every time you get it wrong, let's contract that. Let's make it two, three, four days instead. Uh, and so as long as you're doing that kind of routine, and it doesn't need to be exact, people fight about, you know, is their, SR, their, their space repetition algorithm good right. enough? Right. Like, they're all fine. Honestly, even a fixed algorithm, like a fixed, I'm going to do five-day interval each time is not mm-hmm. too bad either. But as long as you kind of do that, that I'm going to expand the interval if you get it if you get it right, and I'm going to contract the interval if you get it wrong, then for the most part, we're going to get the uh in mm-hmm. there. And we're going to make it a little bit harder every time because your memory is getting better. And so we're going to keep you challenged. And as long as we do that, then you're using your time really, really effectively. And when you're talking about a, a, a language, you're talking about thousands and thousands of pieces of information so every little chunk of efficiency that you can get with one word is something you get you get back a thousandfold 
And so that's why it starts mattering. It's, it's, it's useless when you're talking about, can you remember Kutyo? It's really useful when you're trying to remember the first top 3,000 words in your language. Right. Which sounds like an almost insurmountable amount of work when you first hear that. But when you break it down in these tiny little chunks of, I think you said, you know, if you 30 minutes a day, you can learn, you know, and Tons. really learn 3,000 words in, in months. I mean, it's... Yeah. No, it's, it's, a, it's an incredible... Like the idea of like the, the problem with language learning is that you come into this and you try and learn a hundred things. And then in two months, you've forgotten the first hundred things. Right. But if you could hold on to every single thing that you, you take in, it doesn't take that long to pick up a lot of stuff. If you're picking up new things every day and holding on to everything that you, you, you had in the past. So yeah, I mean, this is a thing about months as opposed to endless years. Right. And I even like the idea of, I know Benny Lewis talks about a lot of thinking in terms of hours instead of even days, weeks, or months. Just how many hours are you actually on task? So in addition to doing flashcards, what are what does an ideal day of language learning look like for you? What do you actually do? Whether this was back when you were in school learning languages or, or now if you're learning additional languages. I mean, it's tricky. What kind of, what are we talking about? I have infinite time or we talk about I have no time? Somewhere uh, yeah, well, actually, let's break this up. So I know you're a busy CEO now. So yeah. what is like your MVP, like minimum viable study time now? Like you'll feel like, okay, I did, I checked off the language learning box today enough to feel good about it versus if you had infinite time, what would you do? Sure. So um, I, I actually started writing a series on habits, habit formation, because I thought it was super important. Um, and then I started doing it to test all the theories out. And I built uh, an MVP habit. And that habit was I needed to do, uh, I needed to do my reviews every day uh, mm-hmm. at a rate of five new cards per day. Uh, and that turned out to be this like eight-minute habit. Mm-hmm. That's enough to get through all my reviews and still take in five new flashcards a day. So I've been doing that every single day now, I think for a little bit longer than a year. Um, and I've gotten back on top of my Japanese for the most part. Um, that is enough. It's not enough to build my Japanese substantially at all. It's enough to get back on top of Japanese I had in the past mm-hmm. and kind of keep it where it's at. In the last two months, like really, there was like a New Year's goal. I was like, okay, like, like I can't just sit here maintaining crappy Japanese. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I am achieving little here. Uh, I'm achieving that I've done a habit and I've really ingrained that habit. And it's hard to not do my habit, which is great, just where I wanted it to be. But my habit is not making me better at Japanese. Uh, it's time to bring in a tutor. And so um, at this point, I see my tutor once a week. And uh, we spend an hour together talking about random crap mm-hmm. that happened this week uh he writes down the sentences that were new for me i put those sentences in my flashcard uh in my flashcard system and then i learn them at a rate of five a day the same rate as before uh and so the lesson takes an hour on a thursday she was this morning uh and then for about an hour sometime over the weekend i'll stick in the flashcards and that will last me about a week or two and now that's my new MVP. That's my, I have a little bit more time. Mm-hmm. I'm not just on the back burner. Um, that's where that goes. There's another MVP for maintenance that I like when I have a, a solid language and that's every week, a half hour of tutoring, just chatting. And I do that for Spanish and Hungarian just to keep them alive. Uh, and that seems to be about the right amount is one hour every two weeks, a half hour every week. That, that seems to keep it at about a stable, mm-hmm. fine, fine level. 
so those are my like low, those are my, I'm super busy. That's my super busy status is where mm-hmm. I'm at right now. That's that. As time goes up, if I had, if I really wanted to spend like a good solid hour, um, I would want to throw in, uh, well, I would want to ramp that rate up from five a day to like 30 a day. I would run a ramp up my tutoring from once a week to twice a week and uh, start putting those flashcards all in so that I would really be picking mm-hmm. up all the things that we talked about. As I started getting, I think if I was doing that for a few more months at this point where my Japanese is at, um, I think I would start being more or less comfortable with starting to watch anime, um, mm-hmm. at which point I would start looking through scripts ahead of time with my tutor. I would start finding some of the key vocab that I'm like, whoa, what is that? And then we would have a discussion about that and that go into my flashcards of the week. Uh, and then I would watch a new episode that week and maybe watch it a couple times. And then as that started becoming more familiar and I started getting used to the most frequent vocabulary in that particular series, then I could really start ramping it up and not just watching an episode a day, but maybe an episode a week, maybe two a week, and then three a week, mm-hmm. and then maybe an episode every day. And then as things really start ramping up, if I have infinite time, then I go to Middlebury. Right. <laughs> like that's that's the end all be all just yeah full, full immersion. immersion experience yeah it's just give me 16 hours of japanese a day and, and let me rip because that's that's awesome i mean it's a special kind of masochism but it's it's yes. so good yeah yeah except no substitutes <laughs> yeah yeah well i mean they're the, the big part of what i write about is how to create the closest thing you can to an immersion environment you know right at home which obviously it's not the same thing. Maybe it's 50%, maybe it's 25% is good, but hey, that's better than zero. That's what I'm aiming to do with this app really is yeah. that, can we take can we take this immersion experience, which I, is good and honestly is almost universally good uh, in the mm-hmm. sense that I, I remember going to Middlebury and like I'm sitting there with my like sophisticated learning system that I built <laughs> and, I, and I'm, I'm in there for Russian with all these other people who don't haven't spent years learning how to learn languages. Mm-hmm. They're learning just as fast as I am. I'm not faster. I retain right. more. Uh, mm-hmm. And my, my retention is better, and it's better long-term, which means two months after the program, my Russian's at a better spot, as far as I can tell. But in terms of day-to-day progress, I'm not better than 16 hours of straight Russian a day. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> that's 16, that's a fire hose. Like, I can't do better than fire hose. Like, and I'm right. not, try, like, it's, it's not, immersion is immersion. All I'm doing is making it a little bit more memorable. But the other thing I'm doing is making it more chunky uh, in the sense that I can take home a five-minute chunk of immersion every day mm-hmm. where you don't get to go from Middlebury to Middlebury for five minutes. Right. Uh, so that's that's the real thing I'm aiming for is can I get something that is as effective as immersion, make it something that you can hold on to instead of just lose after a day? Mm-hmm. And then can I make that in a five-minute chunk, a 10-minute chunk, a 30-minute chunk? Which also makes it less intimidating. It makes it more fun. I mean, that whole thing of the perfect diet is the one you stick to. I think the perfect language learning regimen is the one you actually can can do every day as we yeah. said whether it's an eight minute habit or a two minute habit as james clear talks about whatever it is do something yes whatever, whatever it is it could be one flashcard literally like yeah maybe that's your mvp to start with one damn flashcard that is great yep. start there because better than zero yep cool well i know we're getting long on time here just one last question what is the language book tool app website whatever that that you recommend most other of course than than your own um it's, it's tricky i remember seeing this and being thinking about this and being like hmm, what, what would we kind of talk about i, I kind of go in a few different directions um as a tool i love frequency dictionaries mm-hmm. i find that that a really well done frequency dictionary like the ones that rootledge puts out are amazing they just they're there's it's like here's the most valuable gold in this language and a bunch <laughs> of examples 
here. Like, right. We made that for you. We made you. this for you. Yeah. We made it like, here's You're a welcome. gift. Like, enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then here's number, the second most valuable tool in this language. Do you want yeah. that one too? Here's some example sentences. Like, those are, yeah. those are gold for people who are really wanting to nerd out about like what the, the science of, of language acquisition. Um, there's a book by Lourdes Ortega called Understanding Second Language Acquisition that I feel like has everything in it. It was the primary source for my book, honestly, when I was trying to look for like, wait, what do people, where's the research? Like, what do people Right. Get? Yeah, there's so much um, out there that's paraded as science that's just either pseudoscience or someone's opinion. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Ortega's book just has it has it all in one spot and also has the has the controversies. She's like, here's the one mm-hmm. study that says this and here's the other study that says the opposite. And here's what we think about that and why. Yeah. Like, Just rare, great. I think. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. Um, so that, and then like, I guess for people who are just kind of language nerds and aren't really looking for the science sciencey part, um, the guy Deutscher is the unfolding of language for me, I feel like was, um, it, it talks about how language develops and like, you know, why words start turning into contractions. Like, why do you, why is that, that we have aujourd'hui, which was like on the jour, on the day of the day before the day, like it's like these sort mm-hmm. of long strings that start contracting into this silliness. Uh, like why things expand, why we say like, oh yeah, I'm really sure. Like, well, is that any different from I'm sure? Like, right. really. Uh, so these phenomena that, that start explaining like what you're looking at so that when you're looking at a language and you're like, well, this is garbage. Like why, why is this thing so stupidly formed? Like, why don't we mm-hmm. just have a, like a reasonable grammar instead of this ridiculousness? Um, I feel like Guy Deutsch's book, uh, gives you some answers on that front. So you don't have to just look at them and be so angry at like the person who created this language right. and just be like, Oh, well, this is what humans do. Like this yeah. is how he, this is how language works. So right. I shouldn't be angry at it. It's just, it's a, it's a feature, not a bug. Right. Yeah. It's, it's organic and it's not planned. It's, yeah. it's And those that are planned are still a mess too. <laughs> if you sure. look at, as yeah. Toronto, it's like, this is not really that logical either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So, well, cool. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. And I I wish you luck with the final marathon or sprint, whichever ends up being for getting the app launched. And thank you. This was fun. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Ciao. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Language Mastery Show. Again, for show notes, go to languagemastery.com slash show. And if you enjoyed what you heard, I'd really appreciate a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps more people find the show and it helps keep this show ad free. All right. Thank you much. And we'll see you next Friday.